When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're... Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm here at my home with the lovely Peter Hart. Hello, Gary. And it's the new year. It is. Bright and early it is, isn't it? It is. Although when you hear this, it's probably going to be about February. Yeah, but there you go. Oh, well, that died a death, didn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, should we pack up then? Yeah. No, no, no. On, onwards. What are we doing today? Well, we're doing uh, another episode of the 54 Fars, our favourite second 54 Far year memory. Uh, and this one's called All Over by the Shouting. But there's something important in this. What is it, Gary? Is it a question mark? It is, because uh, people tend to think that you know, when they're advancing, they're advancing into Germany. It's all over by the shouting, and but people are still getting killed, still getting maimed. It's still pretty awful if you're there and amidst it. Yeah, although I think, in fact, it's fair to say both sides seem to have lost their enthusiasm for a war that was, as you rightly say, ending soon, but might, but yeah. might outlive them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they know people are going to die. They just what? What's their main hope? You are an ex-soldier. What would the average soldier be thinking? Well, that it, it's not me. It's <laughs> someone else gets horribly wounded or killed. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the background, but by tenth of April, nineteen forty-five, the Twelfth Army Group uh, had, uh, had that's the Americans had uh, subjugated uh, the economic powerhouse of the Ruhr. Uh, and uh, now, uh, now Montgomery, that's 21st Army Group, and Bradley were would launch a concerted drive for the Elbe, the River Elbe area, with the British edging north towards Hamburg. I didn't understand any of that, did you? Yeah, the British are going to edge north towards Hamburg. Oh, right. That's, it all becomes now, for of- many of the men, this was a depressing period. It's a bit like the period I've known you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second five and four far yeomanry remained at Esperk, for a couple of days, as there was considerable concern over the proximity of the Belson concentration camp. Yeah, it was just about 10 to 15 miles to the northeast. Uh, uh, this is terrible, of course. There were 40,000 uh, emaciated inmates in there. Uh, the camp was only designed for about 8,000. Uh, many of the people who'd survived were, had typhus. There were some 10,000 unburied corpses. This is a serious, besides the human tragedy, which we're not, uh, brushing aside, uh, 
Although we're about to brush it aside by saying uh, this, this is a serious health hazard. To, to, to yeah, and and I didn't know this. This is rather bizarre, really. Uh, it triggered negotiations where the Germans claimed their only concern was that the inmates might spread the disease widely, and in the end, a limited neutral zone was grant, granted immediately around the camp. Now, there's a, a, there is a, a more cynical view of what was going on. Yeah, well, if you think about it, in view of what was found there, the German authorities were, were really only intent on gaining time to hide their crimes against humanity. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, whatever the case, uh, and we know what we think, uh, the, the, the men of the second five, four, four Yeomanry had to, had to institute some basic precautions. And you, this is what Trooper Jack Edwards of B Squadron said. We were issued with insect powder because of, of this camp where typhus was raging. We didn't know it was Belson at the time. We were told to sprinkle inside our clothing and inside our blankets. I couldn't have a bath, but we had a canvas bucket and I filled it with some water and got undressed and had a wash down. As I got dressed, I sprinkled this insect powder inside my shirt, pants and uniform as I, as I redressed. I also sprinkled some inside my three blankets. I wonder if that, is that DDT? I, I don't know what it is. It's uh, no, I don't know. Right. Now uh, the river alas in front of them, and the, the bridge had been demolished by the Germans. But the Royal Engineers, let's play tri- tribute here to the Royal Engineers. We'll never do a project on them now. It's too late. But fantastic work they did. Uh, they bridged. They built a, soon built a new bridge, and uh, and uh, Vincent on de Alla, that's uh, town of Winston, which is on the river Alla, Gary. Had been captured by the 15th, 19th Hussars and the Cheshire, Cheshire Regiment. Uh, and uh, the 54 Fars resumed their advance on the 15th of April. So, and they take it in turns with the Hussars to go first to lead the advance, don't they? They do. Occasionally, there'd be a brisk exchange of fire, but nothing seriously impeded their progress as a regiment, although some tanks were knocked out of action. When they were leading, if in any doubt, as usual, they would blaze away at the hedges and woods that surrounded them. But at first, progress was quick. Yeah. A brassing up, they called that, didn't they? Brassing up. Uh, and this is Captain Steele Brownie, headquarters A squadron. We went flat out through thick woods, firing ahead into the flanks, occasionally seeing a few enemy and booby traps, Panzerfaust tied to trees with their tripwires across the road. Ineffective. Uh, the usual pall of smoke rose behind us. Uh, that's from all the firing. And, and they fired at anything that was going. Now, they did encounter some serious opposition at Volthausen, which lay on the main Salthaus cellar road. And again, this is still Browning. We met a roadblock. The Herefords dismounted to make an assault, and I went round to the left to find a good fire position. From here, I blazed away with HG, high explosive, and Tracer to help the infantry forward, and the attack went in, past the wrecked roadblock, and into the blazing street. I followed, ploughing through the burning debris. At one point, the house on my left collapsed and showered the tank with embers. I got out and kicked away anything that might have set fire to our precious possessions. <laughs> a possession, possession, the bedding, <laughs> stowed on the back of the tent. The Herefords, with our close support, forced the defenders to, def- to retreat. But a few snipers were left. They killed or wounded several of the infantry, and we tank commanders docked up and down to, pre- to present as small a target as possible. 
while still seeing what was going on. We could not pinpoint the snipers, but we were able to identify the area from where their fire was coming from. It was decided to burn them out. Tom Heald and I crashed through the gardens, surrounded the offending area, and poured in maximum fire till within about 10 minutes all the houses were ablaze. The snipers were silent. House-to-house fighting like that in Waldhausen was always exhilarating. Imminent danger from any direction and the closeness of the destruction caused by one's own guns. Wow. I mean, that's incredibly descriptive, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, the advance resumed until they reached the village of Beckerdorf. And once more, you're going to tell us what Captain Steele Brownlee said. Shots were fired at the leading tanks by troops dug in on the fields. Fire was returned. They fell silent, but made no sign of surrender. So Tom Heald got among them with his troop. Still no response, so he got out and hauled a few from their trenches, which was taking a chance. You're not kidding. (laughs) Well, they could have posed a real threat had the German soldiers not proved to be broken men who had more than they could take of the war. Yeah, and we'll make make this clear again. This is this group of German soldiers. not all Germans. Not all Germans, but this group had had enough. And this is what Lieutenant Thomas Heal, two troop base squadron, said. Suddenly, two hands appeared out of the ground. Looking at it, we realised this ploughed field was full of slit trenches. This was obviously somebody wanting to surrender. Well, there was some of our infantry about, but I couldn't persuade them to do anything about it. So I got out and hauled this poor chap, who was a 17-year-old Hungarian, out of the ground and put him on the tank. So I drove the tank over the trenches, really to frighten people. I made quite sure the tracks were on either side of the trenches. The infantry followed and got them out of the ground. That's how we got 70 or 80 prisoners. Now, uh, Steel Brownlee, he's also involved, and he liberates a group of slave workers. And he's, he's enormously proud and satisfied of what he's achieved here. And, and this is what, we, I mean, the current army, you know the thing about making a difference, soldiers making the difference. And he really feels he's made the difference. There is a, an anti, there's something coming up that shows another side of being a soldier. But this is what he said. Near the farm where I was sitting was a sort of barbed wire cage surrounding a hut. I broke down part of the fence and was amazed to find over a dozen men and women of various nationalities, some French, ragged and living in squalid conditions. They were slave workers who'd been there for two or three years. Wow. And they belonged to the farmer who locked them in at the end of each day's work. They then ate what was passed to them through the wire. I got all this out of them, astonished at their casual and matter-of-fact description of their lot. They were totally dispirited and submissive, but I felt quite otherwise. I hauled out the farmer and his family and made them tear all the wire down, no tools allowed. The ex-slaves sat and watched, smoking our cigarettes after eating a hot meal from our rations, and visibly came alive again. And that's, again, I find that a very powerful quote from Sarah. I love Steel Brownie's uh, accounts. They're, they're not from an interview I did. They're from his, uh, from his own personal account. What a, what a man he was. Anyway. Now, after they crossed the uh, new Muden Bridge, they headed off north to Poitzen. Uh, I, I just want to say, in the book, uh, Burning Steel, there's quite a lot about what happened when they crossed the Muden. We haven't got time for everything. Uh, I, I want to make it clear, there's lots of action going on that we haven't got time to cover. Carry on, sorry. Carry on. I do apologise, Gary. 
Now here, Steel Brownley and Tom Hield were ordered forward to make sure the next wood was clear so as to assist the 23rd Hussars who were taking over the lead role. Now this, as you uh, sort of alluded to, triggered a tragic uh, incident. Well, and this is what Captain Steel Brownley had to say. This is an awful, awful crowd. And you can imagine, he's felt so good that morning. And then this, he says this. The wood was about half a mile away astride the road. A German half-track had just em- half-track had just emerged from it and had been destroyed. We had no infantry, so the best tactic was to go flat out and circle the wood just out of Panzerfaust range. All quiet. I got permission to go further and had a good view of a smaller wood to the right. There were movements and two tiny white dots appeared at ground level, evidently men in slit trenches. I put in four or five HE and then a stream machine gun. The, the place took fire. Figures emerged waving white cloths and I motored nearer. To my horror, they were civilians, followed by a horse and cart on which were piled all kinds of household goods. I halted a hundred yards from them, not knowing what else to do. Two figures came towards me. They were children, a boy and girl, holding hands and running as hard as they could over the rough ploughed earth. They came right up to the tank, looked at me, and the small boy said in English, You have killed my father. There was nothing I could say. The only thing to do was to get on with their job. Now, I remember that 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 is incredibly uh, that that's the other side of being a soldier. He hadn't done it deliberately, but he had killed that boy's father. So in in a single day, he'd gone from liberating slave labourers to killing innocent civilians, and and it was just a few hours. It's 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 a cruel war, and he hadn't done it deliberately. It was an accident. But then, if you're firing machine guns and high explosive, now he didn't know it, but still, Brownlee's war was uh, almost over. Now, with Tom Hill following up, he decided to check the woods were clear before wading through the 23rd Hussars for the next leg of the advance. Now, there, he gets into the... And they find an abandoned... Well, the, the crew are nearby, but they, they, they surrender straight away. It's a, a 75mm ta- anti-tank gun. And still, Brown, ever, ever the, he's cheered up a bit. Well, then that's the nature of soldiers. He decides to try and destroy it. And let, let us hand over to Trooper John Buchanan, 4 Troop A Squadron. Oh, that's... Uh, his old gunner, I think, wasn't it? Uh, and um, to, to, to see what happens next. Brownie had a look. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get a shell and we'll stick it down the muzzle. Get well back, then you fire at it. You can turn the machine gun to single action. Pop, pop, until, it, until I hit it. And that would blow it up. That was the idea. So we stuck a shell in it. He stood behind the tank. He had a telephone. Right, buck, Fire. Bang! No, you've missed it. A wee bit to the right. Bang! I should have waited for him, but before he could say now, I put another bullet in. It hit it. The thing blew up, and metal came back and smacked him right in the chest, about an inch of shrapnel, but it hit him square about half an inch deep into his chest. Naturally, he couldn't go on, so he was sent back. And this is a beauty. That was all history, that one. I remember doing it. But this is what Steel Brownie said in his memoir. A small piece of red-hot shell case hit me in the chest. Lying on my back, looking at the sky, I put my hand inside my shirt and threw the object away. Everything rather blurred. I found myself sitting on a petrol can and Mackenzie tying something tight round my chest. Soon I felt fine. I was about to stand up when medical officer when the medical officer appeared. The 23rd Hussars had passed through and their echelon was parked nearby. One of my crew had gone over to them and brought a doctor. He said, 
I was all right, but added that, of course, I must be evacuated. I disagreed, but he insisted. If it had been in our own dock, I'm sure that he would have let me stay in the echelon for a day or two, at least to see how things went. As it was, within five minutes, I was in a jeep going back the way we had come. It was then in a a three-tonner, uncomfortably, to a dressing station, I think in Hermansburg, in a large barn. A medical officer pronounced the wound clean and gave me a jab, told me to wait for an ambulance going back. I sat down but began to bleed. So I lay on a stretcher. He clearly, it was right, he was sent back. It, oh, what do I know? But Oh, it sounds it, doesn't it? And despite his protests, still Brownlee was now in the grip of a, a very efficient evacuation machine. Too right. And he was sent back to Brussels to recuperate. He does rejoin them, but after the war, yeah, that's the end of his term. Now, uh, it, this it becomes routine, doesn't it? Uh, they, they're going, the three allied groups are making good, good progress three allied army groups, sorry. And, of course, the Russians are fighting like mad to get Berlin. Um, but what's it, what's, what's it like for the second 54 fires? Well, for them, it was a case of rapid advances. Then hold-ups at roadblocks, roadblocks or blown bridges, a brief flurry of action, and then a resumption in the advance. Now, they suffer their final uh, fatal casualty on the 19th of April. Uh, and, and it's a very sad... Of course. Why is it sadder than all the other cases? I don't know, but it just seems sad. They were ambushed uh, by a Panzerfaust team in the woods just west of the village of uh, Sangenstedt. Uh, that's on the final approaches to the town of Winston, close to the Elbe. Uh, being that, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, being the last casualty was well, it's a distinction that uh, everyone's going to want to avoid, isn't it? And this is what Sergeant Roy Valance, Four Troop A Squadron, says. The war was rapidly approaching its end, and one felt it would be unfortunate to catch it at the last moment. One thought, well, we've made it. Almost. You didn't volunteer for anything. A friend of mine, Corporal Bush, he was killed. He'd gone right the way through from Normandy. I was just down the road. He was in the lead, and he was ordered to cross a road. As he did, a German anti-tank gun fired down the road. He stopped and bailed out. The gun fired its second shot, an HE it exploded and caught him and killed him. I helped to bury him. It was a very, very sad end. Hmm. Now, that same day, Tom Hield had a lucky escape from the same fate when his troop was ambushed as it passed through some woods. And this is what uh, Lieutenant Thomas Hield of two troop A squadron said. We were ordered to go along the road. We proceeded in the usual way. I was the first or second tank. Certainly, I was going at a reasonable speed, probably not too fast, probably firing, but I was hit by a bazooka. There was a flash, a big bang. I knew I'd been bazookaed. One's adrenaline starts running. I ordered, bazooka, driver, speed up. In fact, I was switched on to transmit, so the whole of the regiment heard I'd been bazookaed. We speeded up and got through the wood. The following tank got through, and I think there may have been one in front of me. When we could, we got out to see what had happened. The bazooka had hit the very end of the track pin. There was 10 or 12 inches of armour at that point. All it had done was explode on hitting and damage the track pin slightly. So, in fact, we weren't bazookaed properly. We were terribly lucky. If it had been six inches higher, it would have been at the base of the turret. I'm lucky Tom. Within half an hour, things had quietened down a bit. We got behind a farm building and the crew took the track off and put a fresh track pin in. 
Well, lucky escape. Uh, now, there's a welcome pause for Regiment in, 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 in the Winston sector. Uh, uh, why was that? Well, the Elba River was a, a considerable obstacle and it would take a concerted effort to actually get across it. And they're then withdrawn for a 10 days hard-earned rest behind the front line. And with that, we'll take a, a hard-earned uh, rest for a couple of seconds. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, on the 1st of May, they were on the move again, moving up to the Elba, which had been crossed by their old friends in the 15th Scottish Division Aye. to form a bridgehead around Lauenburg. Now, the Germans really are starting to give up the ghost. I mean, this is very late in the war now, 1st of May. Uh, and, uh, and none of the men in their interviews, and this, I found this strange when I thought about it, because we did 50 interviews. None of them mentioned that Adolf, yeah, Adolf Hitler. something happened the day before, didn't it? Well, Adolf Hitler had committed suicide, uh, and uh, nobody mentioned it. Um, but it's all good news, I suppose. Yeah, that means peace is coming, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so the second five four five, they're then ordered that to, to race as fast as possible to cut off any oh, and all German communications with the Jutland Peninsula. Mm. Um, there was a battle there, not quite what, the peninsula. <laughs> yeah. Now initially, the regiment were following the twenty third Hussars and Eighth Rifle Brigade, but in the early afternoon, they themselves took the lead. Now there's still some token exchanges of fire. Uh, before uh, they just surrendered. Um, it, it, it's token now, though, and, and they're not suffering casualties. As we said, the last casualty was the 19th of April. Uh, what happens on the 2nd of May? 
uh, well, their objectives then changed. Oh, what is it now? Well, it was claimed that intelligence had been received that Lubeck civilians, worried by the imminent arrival of the Russians, had removed the demolition charges laid on the bridges and were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the British. Now, uh, this is part of this business of the, the Germans really were frightened of the Russians. Now, the news triggered a near instantaneous response and both the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomanry and the 23rd Hussars were ordered to proceed post-haste to Lübeck and it led to something of a race. What? The British Army racing... Uh, competition. Competition. <laughs> mm. Mm. Now, during that pell-mell advance, Tom Hill's troop was detached to relieve a party of some 1,600 RAF prisoners of war. Uh, they were actually reported to be at the village of Westerau, which was about five to six miles from Lübeck. Now, they'd been in uh, Stalagluf 3 uh, and they'd been on this terrible long march and they, they, they were from the east and they were in, they were in bad condition, weren't they? And they, <laughs> they, this was an impromptu wired-up POW camp. It wasn't really a POW camp. It's just in a field outside the village. Now, uh, Thomas Heald uh, gives an account of what happened. Uh, what happened? We drove up to the POW camp. The POWs had put the sign there. The camp was in a farm with a perimeter fence all the way around it. Strangely enough, none of them had heard the tanks coming. Therefore, they were quite unprepared. The guards opened the gate and we drove in. No resistance at all. Then we had 800 to 1,000 RAF men descend on our three tanks. Immediately we got there, uh, there were then orders for us to return. Well, it's very difficult to extract oneself from 300 men on your tank. I found I was missing one tank. Now, this is uh, this is it, because this is the beauty of oral history. We interviewed Gordon Fiddler, who was the driver of the missing comet, the missing tank. And uh, he said this. We had to stop. The prisoners were coming out of the gate. They clambered onto the tank. It was absolutely horrendous. They put their arms around us. They were jumping onto the tanks. They wanted to uh, to ride on them. They wanted to get into the turret. They wanted to get into every part of the tank. <laughs> we were taken inside the camp with barbed wire all the way round. They've got they've got a meal of sorts, bits and pieces. So we got so we all got out of the tanks and went into their mess room. Tom Heald went off with the guards. All of a sudden, we heard a tank start up. Somebody said to me, your tank's moving about out there. I rushed out there. The co-driver had been asked by the RAF prisoners if he would knock all the wire down. That was OK. <laughs> yeah, he had no right to be in there, but he did it. And he did it all wrong. He went and followed the wire instead of going over it and back over it and back, knocking it down. When we, got, when we got out there, the tank was absolutely covered with wire. All around the back sprockets, the idlers at the front, we were in a hell of a state. It took us three or four hours using everything to get the wire off the sprockets. So in other words, because they kept going, it just wrapped, just wrapped itself. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, the second five and four fire yeomanry charged up the motorway. Oh, that's... Uh, the Autobahn, yeah, one of the cliched symbols of Hitler's Nazi regime actually turned to good use and they headed towards Lübeck. Yeah, uh, it's a really dramatic advance and, and it triggered... There's lots of stories about this advance. Uh, this is one from Trooper... Uh, one of your favourites, Gary, Trooper Ron Forbes, 4 Troop B Squadron. The Autobahn was a beautifully built road. It was elevated in certain parts. We were on one of these elevated parts when we saw this steam train leaving the station full of troops. We shot it up and blew up the engine. The personnel on the train all coming out and taking cover. 
Four or five tanks line abreast tearing up that road, flat out. If you happen to have a better tank than your neighbour, well, you got ahead. It was very thrilling. You realised what the tanks could do on the autobahn. So they're racing. <laughs> yeah. Racing. The 23rd is ours and, of course, racing each other. Yeah. Now, um, th- this is uh, uh, this is quite amusing because it's not just uh, trains they had a go at. What else did they have a go at? Well, as far as they were concerned, planes were also the- a legitimate target. Aeroplanes. Uh, yeah. And Trooper John Buchanan goes on to say, we were coming into Lubeck and there was an aerodrome on the right-hand side. I saw a plane, a Junker's passenger plane, taking off. I fired at it, machine gun fire. I hit it, but what happened to it, I don't really know, because it was a kind of foggy, misty sort of morning. I think it must have slewed or stopped. <laughs> ah, so that's uh, that's uh, trains and uh, planes. planes. Um, now, what's next, do you think, Gary? <laughs> well, in the mid-afternoon, they reached Lubeck to find the city wide open with no resistance. Now, what's their first task? You think, Lubeck's a port. What do they have to do? Well, seize control of the bridges and docks. John Buchanan was delighted to add to his very own uh, his very own ship to his personal score as a gunner of various assorted German tanks, half-tracks, lorries, self-propelled guns and artillery. You mean he fired at a ship? No. Hang on. Uh, let me... No, I'm, you do the quote first. I'm just thinking of something. This is what Trooper John Buchanan for troops said. We were sent down to the riverbank. No real purpose. And this ship was moving very slowly down the canal leading into the Baltic. The officer says, fire a shot across his bow. I think I fired an HE shell across his bow to make him stop. The damn thing didn't stop. Ah, he says, brass it up. Shoot at it with the machine guns. I got the machine gun onto the bridge and I really brassed it up. All the windows were shattered. Whoever it was must have turned the wheel because the ship veered away and crashed into the bank. The ship was stopped. It slewed across the canal. It would stop anything else. There was a ship added to my collection. So that's trains and boats and planes. Dee do dee do dee do dee do dee do dee do do. Yes. Now all the regiment were caught up in dealing with the swarms of prisoners. By and large, they were well treated. And this is what uh, Trooper Ron Forbes says. There were prisoners all the time coming in. Most of them were bedraggled, unshaven, like tramps. There'd been days hiding. It was shocking to see what a proud army could be reduced to. Some of them were so young. They were just kids, really. Sixteen and that. They were crying and in complete fear. They'd been indoctrinated in that the British would shoot them. It must have been a great revelation to them when they realised that they were going to be treated fairly well. Now, they're disarmed, of course, uh, and they're gathered into pies of roughly a 1,000 each, and then they're sent off to improvised camps, like the Westeran uh, camp, but for the Germans. Um, now, um, how many are we talking about? Well, well, in all, the regiment reckoned it dealt with some 15,000 German prisoners of war. That is a definite case of one, two, three lots, isn't it? Yeah, But then there's the problem of all the German civilian refugees that were pouring into the city seeking succour from the threat from the east. What's that threat from the east? That'll be the Russians. Yeah, yeah. Because they're terrified of the Russians. Now, at times, the rule of law collapsed as desperate civilians tried to get food from anywhere they could. There's an even more serious uh, problem. Uh, and, And who can blame 
this lot because they're the displaced persons camps and they'd, they'd been enduring forced labor they'd had terrible terrible conditions uh, they'd been existing under that german jackboot if you like and and do you think how do you think they reacted to... to well, to- they weren't in any sort of mood to wait patiently for the authorities to make the proper arrangements. They wanted food now. And uh, what else did they want? Well, some of them also wanted vengeance on any German that might uh, be around. And part of the duties is to try and control these people. It's a difficult task. Uh, it is difficult. It is, but by the end of the 2nd of May, some degree of order had been achieved and it was backed up by a really strict curfew. Now, next day, the, the city's handed over to, to the uh, 5th Division and the regiment then billeted for the next week in in, in nearby villages to, to, uh, of Monkshagen and Eckhorst. Uh, they're just, just west of the city, just a couple of miles to the west of the city. Now, the end of the war was nigh... And as so often happens, it ended in a tremendous anticlimax. Well, for the for the for the five and four fires, yeah. yeah, there was no heroic last battle. The German resistance, so long prolonged, had finally just fizzled out into a miasma of misery. Miasma alliteration again. Yeah, purple prose. Game. Purple prose. You can't beat a bit of purple prose. No. Well, sometimes. Um, it, it it's funny that the. The, 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 there is always. I mean, I, I've done three of these regimentless. You don't know about the DLI one yet, but and the, it's always, of course, an anticlimax at the end, isn't it? A formal military surrender was signed at o two forty one on the seventh of May. Oh, seventh of May. That's your birthday, Gary. With uh, the Gary final like presents this year, yes. if you could send them courtesy of Peter Hart. <laughs> With the final ratification of the unconditional German surrender to the Allies finally signed on uh, the 8th of May at 21.20, so 20 past nine at night. So uh, uh, they, they, they celebrate uh, the victory in Europe, uh, VE Day, 8th of May, and they, 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 they celebrate uh, with – how do they celebrate it? Well, they had bonfires, they're, they're drinking. No, Gary, yeah, drinking. And uh, generally having a good time. It was a time for uh, mixed feelings, now, really. Now, explain to me why it's mixed feelings. I, I, it's- well, as an individual, they're going to have relief that they'd survived and to finally know that they were safe. A natural celebration that their war was over. But at the same time... They're going to have a lingering sorrow for all the friends that they'd lost in the years since they'd landed in Normandy. Yeah, uh, it, and this is very evident in, in the interviews. There, there's, a, well, 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 I'd call it a kind of survivor's guilt. That's modern term. I don't think they use those terms then. But a survivor's guilt. Uh, what, why have they survived when better men than they had died? Is it's a sort of cliched way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah, it was as if all the weight pressing down on them had suddenly been removed and long suppressed thoughts forced their way to the top. Such jumbled up emotions in the military minds often promotes a desire to seek a happy or sad oblivion in alcohol. Yes, and uh, that's exactly what the men of the 2nd 545 Yeomanry did. And this is what Sergeant Roy Valance, our old favourite, um, uh, four troop A squadron said. Then he'd ended. We made a huge bonfire in the middle of a field. Believe it or not, the centre of it was a petrol tanker. <laughs> they weren't entirely out of danger there. It wasn't absolutely full of petrol, but it still had some. Whatever else we could find, we put on it. A huge bonfire. We had it at night with a lot of beer. <laughs> we fired off our, all our very pistols and whatever pyrotechnics we had. 
That was the end of it. I felt greatly relieved and extremely lucky. Lucky to have survived, Gary. Now, Jeff Eason remembered a truly wild bonfire blazing out of control in that farmer's field at Monkshausen. Uh, sorry, Monkshagen. And this is what Trooper Jeff Eason of the Recce Troop HQ Squadron says. We were parked in the middle of a field. Celebrations are a bit difficult to arrange. We were up to our eyeballs in muck and mud. But we did tour the countryside and towed in eight or nine or ten vehicles and piled them on top of a petrol tanker and set fire to the lot. The lads who'd been to Lubeck had got all this hooch from the bonded warehouse. They were all as tight as ticks. Anybody could have taken us then. I think I was the only sober bloke there. Now, this reminds me of my dear old father, Leslie Hart, who was in the Royal Navy at the time. And he, the only thing he ever told me, classic of an oral historian, about his war career was that when he was in Hamburg, he was put in charge for the docks to stop anybody looting the uh, bonded warehouses. And he said he failed in his duty because guess who looted the bonded warehouses? The officers. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good old dad. Yeah, and even, you know, with the five and four, four yeomanry, even the officers didn't stand on their dignity uh, of their rank. Uh, and they too imbibed deeply. And this is uh, Major Douglas Hutchison, Pinky Hutchison. Pinky. Of uh, the RHQ squadron. I got drunk on some very unsuitable liquor. I did my drinking with the squadron. They produced this terrible liquor. It was quite potent stuff. I don't remember much else. <laughs> love it. Love it. Now, the f what's the focus on here, Gary? What, what are we talking? Well, booze, 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 and for a heroic few, even more booze. <laughs> booze, booze. Uh, uh, did it matter what type of booze? No, whatever it was, they drank it with gusto. And the results next day, you can well imagine. And this is Sergeant Jim Thompson Bell of Sea Squadron. We celebrated with all the booze that we collected on the way. All different sorts in bottles. I said, what are we going to do? We had a big basin we found. We put it in there. It was nearly green. So, so we so he put all the drinks, all the bottles of drinks in it. So we mixed it. You name it, it was in it. We had some lighting units we picked up on the way belonging to the Germans. We set them up. We had a good old drink up. Then we went to sleep. We'd all bad heads. It was discovered in the morning that we couldn't find my driver, Smithy. We searched all around. We couldn't find him anywhere. About the second day, along comes this fellow with Smithy. He says, I think this is one of yours. I said, he's my bugger. <laughs> Where have you found him? He said, well, he came to us in rather a bad state. He really only woke up this morning. Smithy looked a bit sheepish. <laughs> what had happened? He went out of the barn to have a pee. I'm having a wee wee. Yep. He turned the wrong way, didn't he? Till he landed up with these people down the road. Fortunately, they were English soldiers. And I think that disastrous tale of personal drunkenness for, of Smithy. And I like to make this uh, a personal salute to Smithy. Absolutely. Now, we've, been, we've been in that state. There are photographs of us after a Douglas Haig Fellowship leaning on a wall. Do you remember? Yeah, and we missed the wall. <laughs> Basically. Now, VE Day was a night to remember, celebrated uh, in such a style that ironically ensured most of them couldn't actually remember it at all. Uh, and <laughs> for them, their war was over. 
The second fife and full for yeomanry. So that must be the end of the podcast. No, no, because uh, there's one last episode, which uh, is epilogue, which looks at how they get back into, well, uh, a bit about the time of Germany uh, in peacetime, but then demobilisation and how they got back into the uh, civilian law. And I've just done some work on this and uh, I found this probably the most, I don't know, heart-rending, sad episode of the lot. I don't know why. I, I found it, and I think, you, dear listener, will find that it's not all a happy ending for everybody in the 545. Yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, another episode in the exciting tales of the 545, uh, because I still can't say it, 545 Yeah. 13th Third Tank Regiment we could have had. Why? Cheers, Pete. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?